As Linda read, we are in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. And um, uh, we are the, this section of the Gospel, we are, we are uh, calling attention to the word marvel. This idea of, uh, of seeing things that we can't understand uh, fully, um, uh, that, that are miraculous, that are beyond us, that, we, that sh- bear witness to God's work in this world, and uh, we can't explain them. Uh, we can't often give answers to them. We can only marvel. Um, one of the assignments that I had the privilege of, of doing many years ago was teaching uh, kids from, not kids, young adults from all uh, uh, these different nations how to fly jets. And we did this in North Texas. And uh, after the initial training where they were flying all at, at, at these two, our home airfield and then another one nearby, we would start taking them on uh, instrument flights where they would have a hood on and uh, they would be flying solely in relation to instruments. But one of the things that they had to do as they prepared for these flights out of the local area was study where the uh, emergency airfields would be because airplanes sometimes don't airplane. Right? And, and, and you need to have a place to, to land. And, and so um, they would study where they were, and, and, and then while they were flying, they needed to know exactly where they were. And, and, and we have, uh, because they couldn't look outside, we, we have instruments that show them uh, which uh, direction that would be, and, uh, and, and they needed to know where the closest uh, airfield was. And where we were flying was only a, a couple minutes flight to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and so many of our flights would take us over the top of, of Dallas-Fort Worth. And one of the things I like to do when we would do that is say, hey, I take off your hood, now tell me, where is Dallas-Fort Worth Airport? Um, and I would say that more than half of my students, when we were, it was right in front of us, could not identify Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. It's not because it was hidden behind hills, because if you've been to North Texas, you know that's not a problem, right? Um, especially from 15 to 20,000 feet. It's not because they didn't have the information. Again, they had instruments that would point them in the direction. They had done their mission planning. They had maps uh, with them, airports, diagrams uh, to, to reference, everything to point them in the right direction. And it's not because it's too small or too large, too small to see. If you could put this next slide up here. This is Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. It has seven runways, over 50 taxiways. It encompasses 27 square miles. It has its own zip code and post office. It is larger than the island of Manhattan. And yet from this site, pretty much this, more than half my students couldn't find it. And it's because of this, I think, um, is that the students expected to see, next slide, an airfield that looked like this, their home airfield, sort of out of the side of the city, right? Uh, smaller, simpler, more isolated. Instead, they found an airport that exceeded their expectations. And it wasn't until they were able to release those expectations that they could take hold of a much larger reality. Next slide. So over the next or the past months, we've seen through the Gospel of John all these people who have had some expectations of what Messiah would be, who Messiah would be, what he would do. They had everything that they needed 
to identify the Messiah. They had Scripture, the prophets, teachings, miracles, testimonies, witnesses, other evidence. They, they were living in this great anticipation of the coming Messiah, the anointed one. They had great expectations about who he would be and what he would do. But as large as those expectations were, they were too small. It's, the problem wasn't that Jesus didn't match the expectations. He exceeded them. And so just like I saw pilots completely miss one of the largest airports in the world, many people missed their opportunities to cling to Jesus because they continued to cling to their expectations. Again, we've seen this as we've gone through the account of a man named John. He was, he was a witness. He was someone who was with Jesus on earth. He saw what Jesus did. He got to know who Jesus was. He heard what Jesus was teaching. He, he ended up believing that, and he, he became convinced that Jesus is exactly who Jesus has said he is, the promised Son of God, Son of God who was sent into this world not to condemn it, but in order that the whole world might be saved through him. John was so fully convinced of these truths that even though he was tortured and exiled for doing so, he wrote this gospel for this purpose. That to those in his time, to those who would come after, for each one of you, he wrote this gospel that you might believe in that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. John weaves all these different threads through his gospel uh, as a witness to Jesus. And, and one of these threads is, are these seven specific signs uh, through the gospel that point to Jesus as the Messiah. And we've seen three of them uh, right now. We, we've seen the turning of water into wine at, at, at the wedding in Cana, the healing of the official's son, and then a couple weeks ago, the healing of the man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Each one of these signs points to the past, the, the prophecies, the promises of God uh, in, 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 the, in the Jewish scriptures. It, it points to the, pressure, uh, to the present, that Jesus' nature, authority, and his mission, and it points to the future, right, to the promises in his eternal kingdom. Yet repeatedly, people miss the purpose of these signs, and sometimes they miss the signs altogether. It's not that the signs aren't big enough. It's not that they're not clear enough. It's not that they don't have the information or the evidence or the capability to recognize Jesus. It's because Jesus is so much greater than their expectations. So our sermon in a nutshell today is that Jesus didn't come to fulfill our expectations. He came to fulfill God's promises. See, Jesus isn't who people expect. In our, in our uh, text today, starting in the first verse of, of John chapter 6, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. After this points us back, the, the first words of, the, of, of these uh, verses, after this point us back to chapter 5 
where Jesus has just rebuked the Jewish leaders because they have not believed in the witnesses that testify to who Jesus is, to his nature, his identity, his authority. It's not, that they, not just that they don't believe Jesus himself, but that they didn't believe John the Baptist. They didn't believe God through his scriptures. They didn't believe the witness of Jesus' work. And he ends these words in chapter 5 with a really stinging rebuke. He says that they did not have God's love in them and that they sought their own glory instead of God's. So the crowds came and they were expecting physical healing and miracle working and a political agenda. It appears that they are following Jesus not because of his authority, not because of the witnesses to his deity, and not for the glory of God, but because they have seen the signs he is working on the sick. And so Jesus retreats further, and the crowd continues to follow him, and perhaps they're expecting to see even more signs. And it says Jesus went up on the mountain, and, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, and he's going he's to put into here a test. And before I get into that, let's, let's think about another time that, that, that God has asked uh, a person a question. I alluded to this in our, in our prayer uh, today. In the Old Testament, uh, God takes this prophet named Ezekiel, and he, and he puts him in front of these dry bones in a valley, dead, dried bones. And he, and he asks him this question, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, most of us, if we looked at that, would say, no. Right? There's no way that these bones could live. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know a scientist that can take dry bones and turn, turn them and, and make them live. But instead of coming up with his own earthly answer, Ezekiel answers this way. He says, oh Lord, you know. He recognizes that, that he's not expected to have the answer. God's not trying to find out information he doesn't know. He doesn't need a new idea. God is asking him to test him. But Philip misses this. So Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be, uh, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his other disciples, Simon, or I mean, sorry, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? The test isn't, isn't really fully explained here, but I think at the least, it shows that the disciples are still setting their minds on the things of this world instead of the things of heaven. We think back to, the, to Jesus when he meets the woman at the well, right? And, and she thinks when he asks, starts talking to her about water that he's talking about physical thirst. The disciples here assume that Jesus is only talking about physical hunger. And so instead of deferring to the Lord as Ezekiel 
did, they respond with their own answers, right? That come up short. There's neither enough money nor enough food to feed this crowd. But the test isn't over. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming, who is to come into the world. At this point, it seems that maybe this sign has, has been received, that people have gotten the clue about this. They, Jesus did something that was amazing, right? And, and, and what was amazing about it wasn't just that there were crumbs left over of the loaves, or apparently that, that the people really like fish because there's none of that left over. Right? But that's not the point of this, right? The point is exactly what they say. This is the prophet. This is, this is the one who has come into the world. Now, they might not understand that not just the prophet, but the prophet. But it seems like they've got the picture here, right? That, that this is the one to whom Moses right, wrote about. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses says that in the book of Deuteronomy. The problem is, if Jesus is indeed this prophet of whom Moses spoke, they expect him to fit into their expectations. They expect him to do what they expect the prophet should do. And they don't see the much bigger reality of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Jesus knows this, and he knows that he must not allow them to hinder his true mission right, by forcing them into, his, in, into their expectations. And so perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, because of their expectations of physical healing, of miracle working, and a political agenda, they are blind to Jesus' true significance. He slips out of their grasp. They expected a healer of bodies. And so they miss the one who heals hearts. They expected a feeder of stomachs. And they miss the one who feeds souls. They expected the ruler of a nation. And they miss the one who came to be Lord of their lives. So while Jesus exceeded their expectations, the crowd continued to cling to those expectations instead of clinging to him. And so instead of grasping hold of their Savior, they left this, that place that day with full stomachs and empty souls. They left filled but not satisfied with the nutrition that would sustain their lives on earth, but not the bread and living water that would sustain their lives for eternity. 
They left with stories of, of Jesus. The ability to say someday to others, I was there with Jesus. I saw, I walked with him. I, I went up and listened to him teaching. He fed me in this miracle. But they left without the ability to say they knew Jesus, that they had clung to Jesus, that they had laid hold to his person and his power. Are you in danger of doing the same thing today? Will you go home today having a glimpse in the scriptures of Jesus' person, heard some of his words here, experienced a bit of his power, had your expectations met, right? Have your tank filled, your, your, your mood uplifted, your mind enriched, and your soul empty? Will you leave this service today with a notion of this quaint Jesus who fits in the boundaries of your expectations or with the power of the living Jesus who fulfills God's promises. If your expectations are getting between you and Jesus, you're in good company. It didn't just happen to the crowd. We're going to read that it happened to Jesus' disciples as well. Many times. So while the crowd may have expected healing and miracles and a political king, the disciples are expecting standing and status. And over these next few verses, we'll see they're expecting safety. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The, the sea became rough because of a strong wind was was blowing. It, when they had rowed for, rowed for about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. They were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And on the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea and saw that the, there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not yet entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Matthew and Mark tell this story of, of, of Jesus walking on water in their Gospels uh, as well. And all three Gospel accounts tell us that the passage was rough and windy. Matthew and Mark tell us that one reason that the disciples are afraid is because they believe Jesus to be a ghost. And they also tell us that the storm ceased when Jesus entered the boat. Well, John just shows us that once he was taken aboard, immediately they were able to make headway and make it to land, assuming that we would understand that the sea must have quieted for that to happen. Another detail that Mark uh, includes that John explains just a few verses later uh, in, in what we're going to cover next week is that the, the disciples are astounded at Jesus walking through the, the storm on the water, and, that the, and at the immediate calming of the storm, and it says, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So these same disciples had seen Jesus's miraculous works before. They had heard his teaching. They had witnessed his rebuke of the religious leaders. They had seen him feed thousands with just a few loaves and a few fish. And yet they did not understand the magnitude, the reality, 
the divinity of Jesus. I mean, if they did, what would be weird about God himself deciding he wants to walk on water? They don't get it yet. Their hearts were hardened. They were still clinging to their expectations. But Jesus didn't come to fulfill their expectations. He came to fulfill God's promises. So even in their blindness and hard-heartedness, the disciples hear Jesus' words. It is I. Do not be afraid. And when they hear his voice, they take a really small step of faith in which they, they let go of some of their expectations. They, they take hold of Jesus. And in fact, John tells us they were glad to take him into the boat. Praise God that Jesus is not only powerful, but patient with his disciples and us. Because it would be understandable to me for sure if after the disciples had seen him turning water into wine, right, making the lame to walk, healing the, the sick, asserting his authority and the witnesses to it, and then feeding 5,000, then walking on water, calming the sea, only to find that, his, that these disciples who had seen all this we're still hard of heart and weak in faith. It would be understanding to me if Jesus decided to scrap this whole venture and start with new ones. Find some promising candidates. But his patience doesn't stop there. We're going to see over the next 15 chapters of John's gospel, this continual process of Jesus proving his deity, fulfilling his mission, right? Establishing his kingdom on earth, moving towards that, right? Doing wonders and words and teachings and examples and the disciples continually struggling, right? To let go of their expectations and take hold of their savior. In fact, in the very last lines of John's gospel, we'll see that Peter is still struggling to do this. He's still struggling with what it means to let go of the expectations of this world and embrace Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, fully. But Jesus doesn't scrap this venture. He doesn't look for new followers. Instead, knowing his followers' weaknesses, their doubts, their insecurities, their false allegiances, their sinful tendencies, their unfaithfulness, and yes, their earthly expectations of the king of heaven, he will call them friends. He'll build his church with them. He will send them as his witnesses, as his missionaries. So what are your expectations, your worldly expectations for the king of heaven? And how are those expectations blinding you to Jesus, his person, his works, his kingdom, and his call? Are you expecting to be healed? And praise God that he cures bodies. He heals diseases. He heals them with the miracles of science and medicine, nutrition, exercise, other care that he chooses to reveal to us and others. He heals them through the miracles of anatomy and physiology by the way in which we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he heals with miracles that we cannot comprehend, that we cannot explain. 
And some people he heals physically, immediately. Some he heals over time. Still others. He will heal in eternity. Where death and pain shall be no more. So praise God that Jesus heals bodies. But if your sole focus is on Jesus to heal your body or the body of a loved one, you risk missing the one who came to heal your heart. The one who knows you because he made you who knows how your heart is broken, who knows your insecurities, your weaknesses, your wounds. He is the one who knows not just your public sins, but your private ones. He knows what you hold in secret. He knows your unfaithfulness. He knows your rebellions. And yet he calls to you like he did the invalid. Do you want to be healed? So cling to Jesus, the one who brings healing beyond your expectations because he heals broken, wounded, and sinful hearts. Cling to Jesus who promises not only to heal the one who is brokenhearted and contrite, but even reaches out to heal the heart of the proud, the unjust, the backsliding, patient in his desire that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Cling to the Jesus who could heal the one you love who you don't think could be healed. The one you think is beyond saving. The one who you think has rejected him and never will come to him. Talk to Susan McCandless if you want to know about long faithfulness and late salvation. Maybe you're expecting Jesus to provide for your physical needs. And again, praise be to Jesus because He does just that, right? He promises to fulfill our needs, to provide for them, and even more so than He already provides for the birds of the heaven for the grass of the fields. Praise God that he provides water and food and shelter and clothing and warmth and sometimes enjoyment and wealth and companionship and even luxuries. Praise Jesus who provides for the body and commands us to do the same for others. But if you're expectation is only for your stomach to be fed, you miss, you risk missing the Son of God, the King of heaven, who feeds our souls with the bread of heaven and living water, the one who knows you because he made you. He knows your needs to be fed with his word, to be nourished with prayer, to be filled with his spirit. And so lay aside your earthly expectations and cling to Jesus who feeds your souls. Cling to the one who makes you lie down in green pastures, to leads you beside streams or beside still waters. 
the one who, who prepares a banquet in the presence of your enemies, who fills your cup to overflowing with the riches of His grace with which He has lavished upon us. Cling to Jesus whose provision is beyond our expectations because Jesus didn't come to fulfill our expectations. He came to fulfill God's promises. And maybe you're expecting King Jesus to lead this nation. Maybe you're expecting him to lead another. He does, praise God, he does institute authorities. He he institutes governments. He turns the hearts of kings, whether they acknowledge him or not. Praise Jesus that he is king of heaven and earth and that he often works his will not only through presidents and judges and elected officials and public servants, but even in the, doing, the doings of despots, of dictators, oppressors, corrupt bureaucrats, that they play into his ultimate plans. But though God appoints kings and princes, put not your trust in them. If your expectation is for Jesus to make this a Christian nation, subservient to him, you may very well miss the call of the one who wants to be Lord of your life. The call for you to be a Christian man, a Christian woman, a servant of the kingdom of Christ. So instead, cling to Jesus who is sovereign not only over nations, but calls to serve him, calls us to serve him as the sovereign of our lives. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve. Cling to Jesus who calls you to be a citizen of heaven first, under his dominion, dedicated to his service, worshiping his name and obedient to his commands. Cling to Jesus, whose healing, provision, and sovereignty are beyond our expectations because Jesus didn't come to fulfill your expectations. He came to fulfill God's promises. C.S. Lewis wrote, Reality, in fact, is usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us the kind of, just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone could have made up. It just has that queer twist about it that real things have. Whether you are an atheist or a pagan, an agnostic, a new Christian, someone who has been following Christ for decades, you have some expectations about the universe. Let me tell you this. They are too small. If God could fit into even the largest box of our expectations, he wouldn't be God. If I expect Jesus to be an interesting historical figure, a good man, a teacher, a role model, a prophet, a provider, a worldly king, or even a supernatural healer, my expectations are too small. So praise God that Jesus didn't come to fulfill my expectations. He came to fulfill God's promises. See, even Satan had expectations for Jesus. 
He might have expected Mary to be abandoned by her husband and, and, and for Jesus to be born to a single woman. He probably expected the baby Jesus would be killed by Herod. He, he probably expected that, that Jesus would succumb to the temptations of pride, of, of power, and hunger. And I'm sure he had other expectations for Jesus as well. But praise God that Jesus didn't come to fulfill Satan's expectations either. He came to fulfill God's promises. And so one thing that I think Satan did not expect of Jesus was for him to suffer and die willingly. Not for his sins, but for ours. And then he certainly didn't expect him to defeat death and sin forever by rising from the grave and offering eternal life to all who would put their trust in him. Again, praise God that Jesus didn't come to fulfill anyone's expectations, but to fulfill God's promises. So would you take a few small steps of faith with me today? Ask yourself, and there's four questions. I know we only do three normally, but there's four uh, questions here to help you identify and turn from your worldly expectations and turn to the one who exceeds them. So first, what are the worldly expectations about Jesus that I have? Am I expecting a Jesus who will solve my problems? Am I looking for a Jesus who will turn $5 bills and some change into a life of superabundance? Am I looking for a Jesus who will rule our nation? Jesus who will bring world peace? Maybe my expectations are more personal. Why do I write this stuff? Am I looking for a Jesus who will fix my broken relationships, cure my depression, relieve my grief, heal my wife's cancer? Let us not lose hope that Jesus is at work in this world, in our time. But let us also not continue to cling to our expectations. Putting our hope in the circumstances of this finite world instead of the eternal promises of our God. So here's the second question. How are these worldly expectations keeping me from seeing the Jesus who is beyond them. And third, am I living with my stomach full and my soul empty? Am I enjoying the blessings of this life while my soul starves for lack of relationship with the one who blesses? And finally, what small step of faith could you take today to start releasing your grasp on those expectations so that you can cling to Jesus, our Savior, who came not to fulfill your expectations, but to fulfill God's promises. Let's pray. Oh God, we... we we see, we read, we study your accounts of how you came and blessed and healed and provided. 
and, and people were filled with joy in the moment at a, at a wedding in Cana. They were filled with joy in the moment when a, when a son was revived. They're filled with joy in a moment when legs regained strength. They were filled with joy in a moment when their stomachs were filled. They're filled so many times with joy in the moment, in your presence, and yet they missed who you were. Lord, I do the same every day. Lord, we do desire healing. We desire provision. Lord, we desire a ruler. Uh, We desire your work in this world, in our times. And Lord, our our broken, sinful, wounded hearts uh, often only look that far. Lord, heal our hearts, feed our souls, rule our lives in a way that we we would not miss you because we expected something else. We pray this all in the name of your Son, who exceeds our expectations. Amen.